listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. We will be continuing through our series of reading through the book of Romans. We are up to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, and then we will go through it bit by bit. So starting in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Alrighty, there's two sections here of what Paul is addressing. And verses 21 through 26 are kind of one big long sentence in the Greek. And in English, this is not uncommon. Like in Ephesians chapter 1, like there's 10 or 11 verses that are all just from one verse in Greek. And punctuation and things like that have to necessarily be different in English for it to be actual grammatically accurate English. And so translators have to break it up at times, and every single translation does this. It's not one over the other. Um, King James, New American Standard, NIV, every single one of them have to do this. Um, But when we get back to verse uh, 21, we read, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Now this section switches from simply discussing what the law could accomplish, verses 19 and 20 of this chapter, and starts to discuss God's righteousness apart from the law or without the law, uh, where he says, but now, uh, shows Paul is starting to contrast the old with the new, uh, the way it was under the law of Moses and the old covenant with the new covenant, uh, where it says the righteousness of God has been manifested. Uh, this kind of harkens back to Paul's thesis statement from chapter one, verses seventeen and eighteen, which we uh, we have to we kind of reiterate over and over again because it's the thesis statement of kind of what Paul is developing in the first two-thirds of the book of Romans, uh, where he says in Romans chapter, I'm sorry, verses 16 and 17, not 17 and 18, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And then here's the, the main point. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man, or the just man, shall live by faith. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And that's kind of what Paul begins to develop, starting from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through the end of uh, chapter 11. And then he kind of switches over to discussing, well, how should you live because of that, you know? And 
so whenever he says here, the righteousness, righteousness of God has been manifested, it kind of goes back to what he says. It says, in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So he's kind of hearkening back to that point. And then when he says in it, he is referring to the gospel as the method for how God's righteousness is revealed. Now, even though Paul says that this righteousness is apart from the law, he goes on to clarify that it is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. And the phrase, the law and the prophets, is a metonymy. Um, it's, he's referencing to a small part of it, in, including in that idea, the whole bits, you know, and it's kind of so it's kind of when he says the law and the prophets, he's meaning reference to all the writings of the Old Testament. You have the law, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and the prophets, kind of including everything from Samuel forward. Now, this same kind of shorthand is used in the Gospels as well, even by Christ. Um, but Paul has to clarify that even though this righteousness is apart from the law, it is witnessed by the law and the prophets so that no one can falsely claim that he's just preaching a message that's all about casting off Moses and the already revealed Word of God for no reason. Um, Christ himself made the clarifying comment in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Um, even whenever Stephen was being taken in Acts chapter 7 to be, uh, they were pretty much going to, they were falsely accusing him, all sorts of things. The One of the things that they accused him of was they were changing all the ways in which we're worshiping God and everything like that. And they just didn't understand the message, or in that context, they probably didn't want to understand. The law wasn't being destroyed or even cast off. It was being fulfilled. Christ fulfills its righteous demands and its ability to reveal sin to us in order to lead us to Christ. And... Whenever it does that and it leads us to Christ, it fulfills its purpose to us. So when it says through faith in Christ Jesus, uh, this righteousness witnessed by the law and the prophets is only through the Messiah by faith in his accomplished work and person. Uh, Christ is referred to as our righteousness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 through 31, uh, we read, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is set in contrast to a righteousness derived from the law of Moses. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, uh, describing his kind of his desire and his aim, he says, "...and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law." but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And this righteousness of Christ is meant to lead to us becoming righteous also because of him. So it's not just this imputed righteousness, which there is a biblical view of imputed righteousness, don't get me wrong, but some people use that as a license to not actually have to practically live righteously, and that's just false. Um, because we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, talking about Christ being made a curse for us so that we might be redeemed from the curse, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so there is actually supposed to be a change in us practically. It's not just a you know whitewashed tombs like what Christ says. And he goes on to say, it's for all those who believe. The righteousness is made possible for all who believe in Jesus, the Messiah. 
And so it's in the context, he's like, it's not for the Jews only. Uh, he says, for there is no distinction. Now, Paul references that there is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. He has shown in the previous chapters that both are condemned in the sight of God and are under wrath. God is not partial. He's not a respecter of persons. All who believe will be made righteous in Christ. Now, going on to the next verse, he says, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, very quoted verse. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, now, Paul here is emphasizing why there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Everyone has sinned, which is what he's developed the last two chapters. Everyone is therefore under the condemnation of the law. In the fall, mankind lost the original glory that was gifted by God to them. And this glory can only be restored in and through Christ. And Romans 3.24, Paul says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, scholars point out here that there is some irregularity with Paul's grammar between verses 22 and 24. Most likely, it's because verse 23 should be understood as a parenthetical comment by Paul. Uh, he's clarifying why there is no distinction. There's no distinction because all have sinned. And then he goes back to what he was saying, and so the sense should be, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, being justified freely as a gift of His grace. You know, so that verse 23 is kind of him giving a parenthetical kind of, you know, it's like, you know, for there is no, you know, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And then he goes back to his point. But Paul states very clearly here that righteous, that this righteousness is a gracious gift from God. Um, because it is a gift, it is not something that anyone can earn or merit, and, which is what was thought about the law of Moses. And I will say here really quickly, the idea of a gift, many people who hold do an unconditional salvation. They'll sit there and say, well, it's a gift. You know, it can't be conditional because it's a gift. And that really misses the entire point. Um, it's kind of anachronistic, too. You're reading a modern idea of gift, which is not even accurate, Um as what a gift. It's an over-defining of what a gift is when you attach unconditionality to it. And you're trying to read that back into this idea of gift. Gifts are given all the time as a conditional thing. There is a reason that it is given, right? I mean, Christmas. Christmas itself is a reason. You are giving all these gifts under the condition that it is Christmas, um, when people retire from certain places of business, and the people will give them a gift. Why? Because it's, you know, it's a gift because they're retiring. Now, and then people say, well, yeah, but then once it's given to them, it can't be taken from them. Well, that is nowhere needed in the definition of a gift. It's just given under that condition. And so whenever you understand the condition being faith, right, the sole condition of salvation is faith, and some, God gives you the gift of salvation, the gift of righteousness in Christ under the sole condition of faith. Well, what if you undermine that faith, which is the only condition? And so, but then people say they arbitrarily limit it to a decision at one time that, you know, if A, then B through Z happens, you know, regardless. I'm sorry, that's not biblical and it's not true. It's faith, and it's in a state. Yes, you begin to walk by faith. There is a point where you go from darkness to light, being translated from the kingdom of uh, darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. There is a point in time whenever that begins and that change happens, but faith, not a decision of faith, is what is needed. 
And so it has to be walked in, which is why it says to those who walk in the same steps of faith as faithful Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And so those who try to say that, well, because it's a gift, that therefore it can't be conditional, you know, I'm sorry, they just, they really don't know what they're talking about. They're interpreting things in light of their doctrine and reading certain ideas into the idea of a gift that's not part of the definition of a gift. The only thing that it refutes is what Paul is emphasizing here. It's a gift because it's not earned, right? And that's the thing that a gift actually is set in contrast to, being earned. Conditionality is not that idea. Okay, so it says, uh, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now again, this means by receiving this gracious gift of righteousness— um, that it's only found in Jesus, right? That's the emphasis, in Christ Jesus. It's not found anywhere else. And the word underlying redemption uh, has the root understanding of being released from a captive condition. And it's the idea of buying a slave out of bondage. And while you want to be careful when looking at the root meaning of words, um, because words have a semantic range of meaning, they can only be understood in context. Um, but that meaning bears out with Paul's message here. The context does support that. And I have to say that because there's a lot of things that people read into the Bible um, by just, you know, they'll go to the etymology of a word. Well, because it's related to this word over here and the root this or that, then therefore it means this and they'll carry it forward. That's That's not correct. That's not the way you handle language. You need to study a little bit more about linguistics. As, and I'm not an expert in those things, but I, I'm starting to study them deeper than, you know, what I was originally taught when I first came to Christ. You know, people saying, well, dunamis, the dynamite power of God. No, that's not what that means. You know, you're taking a modern idea of dynamite, and you're reading it back into the word dunamis in the Greek, you know. So I just have to emphasize that you can't just look at the root of a word and say, well, that always in every single place happens in that context. That meaning is, you know, built in right there and always in every single place. That's not true. But it does bear out here because of the context, okay? It's the difference between semantics and pragmatics. Um, but Christ bought you back from bondage by what he did. And that's actually how Paul um, continues. And Romans chapter 3 verse 25 says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Um, it's important to remember that God is the one who set Christ forth as a propitiation. God did the saving work, and God has publicly displayed the means of our salvation. He's not just an angry kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass just looking for people to smite. He himself has put forward the means for unrighteous man to be made righteous freely. And so, and even in different multiple ways, Christ being sent forth as the, the atoning work that what he has done, it vindicates God's character. And that's kind of what Paul begins to zoom in on in this verse now, the word underlying propitiation, that's one of those older words that people will be like, really, what does propitiation mean? And those who are not raised in church environments, they don't understand it. That's not a word you use in English hardly ever. Um, and it's usually only used in English by those of us who have been to church for a couple of years. Um, and, you know, if you go to churches, they talk about the, you know, it's a righteous propitiation. It's usually in King James-only circles. 
because uh, some of the newer translations take the word propitiation out. And then people say, well, they took it out. You know, they're trying to change the doctrine. Well, no, it's a translation choice. Um, but underlying it is the Greek word that literally means mercy seat. And this is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, where on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, that's the innermost part of the temple, and make an atonement for sin. Um, it also was the place where God's presence was said to dwell in Israel. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat especially, pictured the very throne of God, and these are the, the shadows of the things in the heavenlies, you know, where it talks about in Hebrews and also where it says, where it was shown to Moses to make the things, you know, according to the pattern that was shown to them in the mount. They're the shadows of the heavenly things, which are the actual substance of it. So the Holy of Holies pictures and symbolizes the very throne of God. Now, some have pointed out, though, that the Jewishness of that idea of the Holy of Holies and all of the stuff that comes up with that idea uh, would have been most likely lost on a Gentile audience. Now, at the very least, scholars agree that the word has the general meaning of removing God's wrath from mankind. Okay? No, I don't, I don't see any problem with it pointing to the mercy seat in that, in that sense, because most of what Paul is saying here is very Jewish and the thing, the kinds of arguments that he is anticipating, shows that he he's talking to them who know the law, which he references later in the book of Romans. So he has a Jewish audience in mind for a lot of this. So when he says through faith, you know, as a propitiation in his blood through faith, um, to put your faith in Christ's atonement for sin um, is to agree and submit to the idea that sin was worthy. Of such a punishment. You, you cannot yield to and accept Christ's sacrifice on your behalf and also undermine why it was necessary in the first place. You agree with God against yourself that you are indeed a sinner and that such a sacrifice was necessary to redeem you. That's all kind of in the idea of through faith in Christ. It's not just an intellectual, I believe it happened. It's understanding the reason why, to a certain extent, you don't have to make it a you know theological paper's worth of theological understanding. Um, but you, there is this idea of acknowledging the need for it to happen, and because sin made it needed, need, sin made it necessary for it to happen. You know, understanding the price that had to be paid. Um, he goes on to say, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. That is God's righteousness. He's talking about his own character. God had to display Christ's death publicly um, to demonstrate his judgment on sin and to vindicate his own character. And Paul goes on to point to God's forbearance during the Old Testament. He goes on and says, for, because in the forbearance of God, he, that is God, passed over the sins previously committed. Now, this is referencing um, to how God intentionally and temporarily didn't take sin fully into account during the time of the Old Testament so that men could actually come before him. He could do this because he himself knew that a full payment for sin was coming when Christ would die. He allowed 
the blood of bulls and goats to stand as a temporary means until the real sacrifice came. Um, Douglas Moo um, puts it very well. He says, quote, God postponed the full penalty due sins in the Old Covenant, allowing sinners to stand before him without their having provided an adequate satisfaction of the demands of his holy justice. And so I've heard it worded this way before where it's like, so those who exercised faith in the sacrifices in the proper way, they did exercise the same kind of saving faith as the New Testament um, believers did. It's almost like they, it was counted unto them almost as it was credited to them in that sense um, because the real satisfaction for, for sin was coming and they were fulfilling those same requirements of faith and reliance in God's righteousness. So if they had been in the New Testament, they would have believed in the same thing, because it was the same kind of faith. And Paul kind of alludes to that in Romans 4 also, when he talks about Abraham. Um, So he goes on to say, verse 26, "...for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." So Paul emphasizes the present time, because now is the day of salvation, and Christ has come to fulfill all righteousness. The atonement has been made, and man can be now reconciled to God completely. And he's emphasizing this in contrast to the old, right? It says, so God is demonstrating his righteousness for the way he's done things and how he has done, now, done them now. Um, and this is different than the Old Covenant with temporary animal sacrifices that God put in place for time until the full and actual sacrifice was made. And Paul points out, as in the last verse, how God's righteousness is demonstrated through Christ's work. And God is not only just, that is, righteous in his own moral character, but he is the justifier of those who look to what Jesus did on their behalf. Um, and this is kind of reminiscent of Isaiah forty-five twenty-one where the Lord is in the midst of announcing judgment on idolatry and pointing out its foolishness. And he says in Isaiah 45, 21, um, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together, talking about the pagans about idol- with their idols. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. And so he says that he's a righteous God, and a Savior. So righteous God in the sense that, no, His standards are right, and He has, really, He has the right to execute judgment, but He is also a Savior, right? So it's both sides. He will judge wickedness, and He offers mercy. Um, and so even in, in this same context, He still offers salvation. And the very next verse, Isaiah 45, 22, says, "'Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other.'" And so God is righteous in how he has handled things in the past and passing over temporarily those sins in the old covenant, right? And now he's showing the, in what he has done with Christ and the full weight of sin being demonstrated by his punishment for it, by this sacrifice. It is demonstrating that, no, he is just, and he also is justifier of those who believe in Christ. Uh, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. And so Paul kind of switches to a different 
type of uh, point that he's bringing up now. He switches from what he was previously talking about to kind of addressing a different thing. Um, Paul had said back in chapter 2, verse 17, that the Jews boasted in the law. And indeed, when they viewed it as saving them on their own merit, it would provoke them to boast in their own merit, you know? Um, This new covenant left out all boasting. Faith, which is what is set in contrast to works here, excludes boasting in yourself. This is another example of how Paul's understanding of faith shows that it cannot be considered meritorious or as earning anything as Calvinists, for example, need it to be. The very nature of faith is the opposite of works, and Calvinists maintain that view Um, Some of them maybe unknowingly, but their theologians know it because it's logically necessary for them to, you know, say that God God has no foreknowledge of any good in and of you. And they say, see, that includes whether or not you believe, where it says, but nevertheless, the Scripture says that you're elect according or through faith. And God does foresee you as a believer. And so they say, well, he can't say that that's good— And so he can't use that as a standard for choosing you. And so they say, well, if that's the case, then he's basing you on foreseen faith, and therefore he's choosing you based of works, which is why it's not necessary. It's not true, is what they say. And so it's really just a logical deduction on the basis of their doctrine and some arbitrary assumptions on their point to maintain their view of unconditional salvation. And But no, it's clear throughout Romans, and you'll see also again in Romans chapter 4, that faith— that you believe God, it earns absolutely nothing in the sight of God. It's literally the opposite of works. Faith in Christ is you admitting that you can't do anything to save yourself. And so Calvinists are just objectively wrong about that. But he says, by law of faith. Um, So by law of faith, some believe that Paul is using a play on words to contrast it to the Old Covenant, um, the law of Moses. Um, some have understood it to mean that this new um, religious system, and they'll say that the, the Greek word there, namas, um, you know, law of faith, um, they'll say, well, it's understood to be talking about a religious system, right? Um, they say, well, this new religious system under the new covenant establishes that the only way to achieve the, the result of righteousness in the sight of God is by faith. Um, however you want to understand it, um, Paul is stating that Instead of works being the condition of of achieving that end of righteousness, faith in Christ is the sole condition. All right, so he goes on to say, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so Paul emphasizes now the reasons why boasting um, is excluded under the new quote-unquote system, the new law of faith. Uh, the new covenant. A man is justified without his own works, which again shows that faith can't be a work, right? It says that you're justified by faith apart from the works of the law, right? And so those who try to say that, well, faith is a work or it's meritorious, well, it says, therefore, having been justified by faith. It says that we are justified by faith, but then they have to redefine it and say, well, no, God believes on your behalf, and I've literally talked to a pastor who has sit there and tried to say, well, it's not your faith, it's Christ's faith working in and through you. He's the author and finisher of it. I'm sorry, those are just twisting the Scriptures to a preconceived idea. It's not what is being talked about. He's contrasting the new covenant of your faith in Christ 
apart and setting it in contrast to the works of the law, where if you think that you're going to be justified by your own works, um, then you can't do anything. You know, that you're not earning anything with God. You're just con- condemning yourself, right? Um, so a man is justified without his own works. He has no grounds for boasting. Um, he goes on and says the phrase, um, apart from the works of the law, where he says justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that goes back to Paul's introduction to this passage in verse 21, where he said, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is manifested. And he's going to go on to mention it um, also in chapter 4, verse 6, to show, showing in that context that this is not a new concept with God. This was always God's purpose. God knew that man would fall from the beginning. So it has always been God's plan A that man must be justified apart from works. That's the only way that man can be saved. Uh, he goes on verse 29 30. He says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. And so the Jews, they also boasted that their God was the real God. And this was a source of, well, we're special because we're God's special people and he's our God, not your God. Um, you know, they thought of the Gentiles as dogs. And when Paul emphasizes that he is also, talking about God, that God is also the God of the Gentiles, he's removing another area that they boasted in, you know. And he says, um, uh, depending on what translation you're reading, he's emphasizing uh, at the end of it, he says, where is God of the God of Jews only? Then he goes down and he says, the God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. It's emphasizing this idea, depending again on your translation, how clearly it comes out, that God is one. And that's something the Jews would absolutely have recognized, because it goes back to the Shema um, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's a reference in the Law of Moses, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You know, there's one God who has created the heavens and the earth, and he created the Jews, but he also created the Gentiles. He's the God of all things. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. And if God's the judge of all the earth, then he's also the Savior of all the earth. You know, so since God is one, and the only true God who created all things, including the Gentiles, then he is necessarily their God also. Whether or not they acknowledge it or not is another thing. But he is, nevertheless, their God. And then he ends this chapter in Romans 3, verse 31, where he says, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. And there's a, it's an emphatic denial there, uh, uki, um, in the Greek. On the contrary, we establish the law. And so given that Paul has just spent time explaining how we are not justified by works of the law, but by faith, Paul here answers the question that would be on a lot of people's minds. If we are justified by faith, then are we just doing away with the law? Um, To which he emphatically responds, no. He says that our faith in Christ establishes the law. He will develop this more fully in chapter 4, showing that it's always been this way since before the law was given. And so, But the purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. And I've talked about this before, but in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 through 25, Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Why? Because the point of it has been fulfilled. Christ himself fulfills the law of Moses. In Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, verse 17, where we quoted at the beginning, 
uh, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so since Christ is the end of the law, Romans chapter 10, verse 4, for those who believe in Christ, it is by faith in Christ and his work that the true purpose of the law is realized, a complete giving up of self-righteousness, a complete giving up of yourself and of any idea that you are going to justify yourself by your works and be wholly devoted to God, wholly trusting in His righteousness, not yours. That's the whole point, right? And so true righteousness before God the Father is achieved only by acknowledging Christ as Lord. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.